0: Hey, what up, hello everybody, Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Sunday, February 4th, and first and foremost, I was supposed to do this episode yesterday, but what happened was I I went skiing, worked a little bit, and some of my coworkers, very smart, fun people, wanted to go out and have some pizza and drinks and got talking with them for a while and blah, blah, blah. Here we are. So, didn't have time to record this episode last night. And here I am, uh, I, I have Rick Steves' The Greek Isles episode on in the background, been snowing all day today, here even in Reno, we got probably close to a foot, I would say. I actually went out on my skinny skis around the neighborhood, they plowed the main Somerset roads here, and so basically I was able to get out and skate on the roads, and did Nordic skiing out there, and it was really fun, really epic, beautiful, did about 13 miles or so, and... Uh, the, the best part was just seeing how people reacted to me just like Nordic skiing in the middle of the road. You know, I, I was I was kind of optimistic, though, because there, everyone was honking and waving and saying, nice, that looks fun. And I even talked to a couple who said they wanted to start doing that. So it was an optimistic op- optimistic day, more or less. Gave me a little bit of hope for reality. <laughs> a little bit of hope for reality. And of course I say that, and this episode's not going to be quite as long. But as I say, hope for, rea- hope for humanity and blah, 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 what I actually want to talk about today is kind of the idea of the allure of trading freedom for security. Basically saying you're willing to give up some personal liberties, human rights, freedoms in exchange for stability and, and some form of safety in society. And of course, the state, well, a healthy state, should always have a monopoly of force, a monopoly of security. But as I've talked about numerous times on this podcast, we are seeing a democratic backslide around the world. And what it's being replaced with is not like fascism or communism, not just absolutes, black and white definitioned political theories from the 1800s and 1900s. Instead, I think what we're seeing is kind of quasi-democratic societies where they do have elections, but also the state is also struggling to combat a problem. Maybe it's gang violence like in El Salvador and Nicaragua, or maybe it's like in the United States where you have this perceived immigration crime threat and you have political polarization to the point where people say, we'd like a strong man to protect our party, our values, and what we deem the American dream. There's different ways we're seeing this happen, but it's happening in democracies. It's not happening in like... Russia. I mean, Russia's kind of past the point of no return in this conversation, but it's in places where basically you have a leader who is willing to kind of rule on a security, law and order message. And along the way, there are going to be some violations of what I call small d democratic societies or small l liberalism, which is about promoting and protecting the individual as well as the community and others as well. And I think it's a sign of kind of our breakdown in bipartisanship. Democratic institutions around the world, trust in media, trust in one another, where you are starting to see people like Donald Trump all of a sudden now kind of be marketed as a stabilizer in right wing media and even amongst some like center right um, organizations because of how bad everything is. And basically, it seems to me like a lot of voters, ranging from in El Salvador, which I want to talk about in a minute, to the United States, to the United Kingdom, to Italy etc., they are willing to trade, st- trade democracy for stability, or they are turning to the idea of stability over democracy. And I argue in the short term, maybe it works, but in the long term, I think it can really lead to some serious issues. So basically today, I want to talk about President Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, because I think he's a more radical example of this. A very popu- He's one of the most popular presidents in the world, But what he's doing, in my opinion, is quite authoritarian, draconian, and he's probably going to end up becoming a dictator by the end of this. And I think El Salvador is kind of the perfect example of the trade-offs that that can occur between liberty and security, and you need a balance, and he's gone in the other way. And also, I'll just add, we are seeing something similar happening right now in Ecuador, where, as you guys are aware, because I talked about this if you've been listening for a while, and the country is basically just cracking down on gang violence, locking everyone up, putting out emergency powers, but then extending them and extending them and extending them. And the state is really cracking down on liberty, but also getting rid of crime. (laughs) So it's a really tough conundrum. And we're going to talk about that. So anyways, moving on. Basically, President Bukele in El Salvador has actually described himself, described himself, it's not other people calling him this. He's described himself as the world's coolest dictator. And I mean, look him up. He, Yeah, he's young, which he's 42 years old. He kind of has the like kind of rough-around-the-edges Playboy vibe going for him. You know, he's wearing designer clothes, expensive sunglasses. He's big on social media. El Salvador made the news, I think it was back in 2021, when he wanted to turn the national currency over to Bitcoin. It was one of the first countries to do so. He's kind of a Bitcoin bro. You will not be surprised to hear that it didn't go as well as he was hoping. But anyways, everyone talks more about how he's the cool part of the world's coolest dictator phrase but they're not actually talking about the idea that it looks like El Salvador is slowly embracing authoritarianism and a wannabe dictator. And because he is so popular, it's worrying. And I've even talked to far right and more libertarian leaning people in the United States, and they all love him. People I know personally, friends I have, they're like, What that Bukele guy, what that El Salvador president is doing is really good. Like, he's showing what you do to end the war on drugs, end crime. And I go, yeah, he's throwing everyone in prison without due process. And yes, the country's safer and the economy's going to do better because of it. But what happens at the end of the day when you create a system like that and this guy also wants to remain in power for life? You already have basically now a police state that could be expanded if you don't want political opposition. Anyways, I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself with that at this moment. But basically what happened was in 2019, there was a huge security crisis. And it's a crisis that's pretty common in El Salvador. It's now common in Ecuador. It's been common in Colombia in the past. It's been common in Mexico. It's been common common in Honduras, Nicaragua. Gang violence, drugs, and a central state that is either corrupt weak or in cahoots with these gangs. And basically what happened is Bukele comes into power and we're not going to talk about his Bitcoin chaos because that was not his strongest effort by any means. But basically what happened is he comes into power and basically police are allowed to detain anyone that they think could be a suspect or there's claims that they're a suspect to gangs or have gang ties or have been dealing drugs Basically it's kind of in a sense what like Trump has talked about a little bit. It's also kind of some of the policies that people like Rodrigo Duterte in um, the Philippines was doing, blah blah blah. The economist writes though in quotes, "More than 74,000 people, equivalent to 8% of the young male population, have been arrested. Hardly any have had proper trials." The article continues though. In some ways his tactics have worked. The murder rate has fallen from 51% per 100,000 people to 3. <laughs> Obviously, That's that's, that's over 15 times of a drop. So, yeah, yeah, (laughs) not bad at all. It's a huge improvement. And also something nice, and I'm starting with maybe some of the positives here, is that average citizens, according to a lot of reports on the ground, are that they were afraid to testify or call out gang activity and they kind of just tried to hide and not talk about it. And since these new policies, I think there is a willingness and an ability for average citizens to actually be able to speak out. Now, what I will say is because there's not a lot of due process or fair trials, basically if someone just accuses their neighbor of having gang ties, it now sounds like they can just throw you in prison, which is also not particularly a good thing either. But basically, now say the economist gives this example. Any gangster who walks down a street demanding protection money can be arrested on the basis of an anonymous phone call. (sighs) Again, Getting back to the short-term versus long-term. When the country has an awful murder rate, yes, being able to accuse people and lock them up, probably, what, half the time? I mean, I don't have numbers in front of me, but a good amount of the time, you're probably going to arrest an actual gang member and not just someone accused of being a gang member. But also, do you want a society where you can just accuse someone without any evidence and they are arrested? Not not, not in the world I want to live in, personally. And... There's also the economic side of this that's happened so far. And I think I'm painting some of these positives. Murder rate goes down. Average citizens can now, you know, call in crime. They don't feel like their lives are a threat. And now I want to talk about economic positives. I think the reason why I'm starting with some of the positives is to highlight how if you're an average citizen in El Salvador, maybe you're okay with supporting Bukele, who's a wannabe dictator, because your life is better, at least in the short term. And again, we'll get into the long term, but this is the allure I'm trying to highlight here is that when the murder rates drop and the economy's better, yeah, you're probably like, well, democracy good, but maybe it's not the most important thing. Anyways, I'll continue. So also Bukele's policies have been decently good for the economy. According to numbers I saw in Foreign Policy magazine, gang crime actually costs 16% of GDP. So you know, almost almost one fifth of GDP was 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 used on fighting gangs, right? And that's by one estimate at least. And basically, you know, local businesses were not always safe. It was not a country known for growth, for investment. And as safety has improved, at least in the short term, there are more small businesses opening up. Some companies are expanding. And we are actually seeing more foreign direct investment, more inward FDI going into El Salvador. And I think one of the interesting ones is that the country's debt, which had collapsed in the kind of COVID, post-COVID era, is actually bouncing back. J.P. Morgan Chase also has talked about how El Salvador's potential growth rate has risen from 2% to about 3%. So I mean, we're not talking about crazy things here, but 2 to 3%, good news. Obviously, it's not going in the opposite direction, right? And another interesting indicator is that the number of El Salvadorians that are trying to cross from Mexico into the U.S. has actually fallen, or sorry, fell by a third in the last fiscal year. And again, when you put all of this together, it's a rosy story. I mean, it's not horrible, Right. And it's the perfect example, again, of how people are willing to maybe sacrifice some of the small-L liberal policies that promote individual freedom for stability. And anyways, again, government should provide security, so Bekele in the short term is doing this. But again, there are pretty damn big downsides to this. And again, I think the main one is that we are, are almost certainly going to see a lot of information come out about how these people are being treated in prisons. You know, when you, when you lock up almost 10% of the young male population, especially without trial, with anonymous tip lines, it's pretty obvious that there's going to be a lot of people that are innocent. And again, I also think that basically he is setting up a network and a police state apparatus that right now is being used for mainly good intentions, which is to make the state safer and it's working. But what happens when he's barred from election coming up, which I'm going to talk about later, and now he already has loyal support. He wants to violate the constitution, and he has the trust of police and the security state around him. And also, he's he already has prisons and anonymous tip lines and a system that can be used to incarcerate people quickly. See where I'm going there? It can expand more. And also, there's a lot of El Salvadorans Innocent ones and the ones that have been imprisoned, this is devastating to their families emotionally and just financially, especially if you're the one working and bringing in money for the family. That's never good either. And also at the same time, he also talks about how one day there's going to be collective trials because everyone's like, okay, they're all locked up in these prisons. Like, are, are they ever going to be allowed to leave? Like, is there ever going to be an actual trial? Or are you just putting a giant bandaid on a giant problem by just locking everyone up and just never talking about it? And basically he said he's going to hold collective trials. So like, uh, you know, a couple trials for everyone. I don't particularly know how that works. It doesn't sound legal, at least in the Western democratic legal system, the the british common law type of system but anyways it sounds problematic doesn't actually get to the root of this either and you wonder if people start maybe opposing this if there's another economic issue and they go well the economy's not as good as it used to be moving on though like let's actually talk about some of the public policies he's put into place i would say orders authoritarian policies and again There's becoming, or we're starting to see, I guess, somewhat of an overlap between his crusade against crime, which is working, and now it's looking like he's using this as an excuse to move towards authoritarianism. An interesting example I saw is that he is basically saying that he's made the country safe, he's brought back economic stability, and crime rates are down, And if anyone else runs against him, they will just be in cahoots with the gangs and they'll bring back criminal activity and open up the prisons. It's kind of the Trumpian playbook of like, I alone can fix this. The dictator playbook, I alone can do this. No one else. They're all on the other side. They're the enemy. And basically he is saying that only he can really solve this. So he needs to remain leader and all the opposition parties are just in cahoots with the gangs. And so you could already see how maybe that's an excuse to ban them. Lock them up if there ever was an attempt at an election, blah, blah, blah. And so anyways, he's used soldiers and the police to intimidate lawmakers. He's also done something that all of these guys seem to do, which is purging the judiciary and then packing it with loyalists. Also, he's using these in quotes, temporary states of emergency, <laughs> which are always extended. And, you know, we've seen a lot like like I'm, I'm never for executive actions and emergency authori- authorizations of power because they're always extended especially when you have shitty leaders like this and they've also locked up journalists and they are they're especially locking up journalists if they report on the crackdown on gangs in a negative light or talk about maybe some of the lack of due process human rights violations the innocent people being locked up and basically they're they're willing to to prosecute journalists if they create in quotes, any form of panic and these temporary States of emergency have been going on since 2019, maybe 2020. And now it's 2024. So obviously not quite temporary. So basically he's consolidated power, packed the courts, intimidates lawmakers is using emergency powers or or, sorry, emergency um, or temporary States of emergency to stay in power, locking up journalists, dominating the narrative, that is all not good stuff. All not good stuff. And he's also tweaked election rules and his allies have as well, basically giving him the advantage and basically he controls the press as well. And so actually today, like like right now, like an hour ago, they held, the, well, well, the elections happened today, February 4th. The elections are over and Bukele has declared himself winner. Reuters notes President Naive Bukele on Sunday declared himself winner of the national elections in a landslide, claiming he captured more than 85% of the vote, even though electoral officials have not released any results. As you guys know, I have a rule about high percentage victories like this when you have divided societies in general elections. If you win 80 to 90 to 100% of the vote, was it really a free and fair election? Also, it's kind of problematic because they haven't even released the results yet. But he he probably won even if he's coming out ahead of this and his party is the new ideas party and according to Reuters it captured at least 58 positions in its 60 seats <laughs> it captured 58 of 60 seats in the legislative assembly <laughs> sounds like a really um really pluralistic society doesn't it but so anyways the problem here is that he's in at least with this The Constitution bars him from running for a second term, but he's done it because he controls the institutions, because he's fighting crime and the populace like that, and he's created an ecosystem to do it. And also on top of this, he is one of the most popular leaders in the world. And again, it's not me, a non-El Salvadoran's right to say, well, they shouldn't put him back into power. But I'm just saying, I think right now people are excited because El El Salvador was so violent and so bad before him, and in the short term, he's fixed a lot. But... He's 42, (laughs) and he's putting in a system that will keep him there for a long time. 42 means he could be there for quite some time. And the last thing I'll say, too, is that obviously this is a specific example of what's happening in El Salvador right now, but at the same time, this is a pretty big trend, especially in Latin America. In Latin America, we are just seeing a huge disillusion with democracy, and it's mainly being led again by governments not being able to keep the people safe. We're seeing it in Ecuador, Mexico. Colombia, here in, in El Salvador, and even in the United States, we're starting to see it. And and there's a pretty interesting pollster, Latino Barometro, so Latin American barometer. And it says that 54% of Latin Americans would not mind if an undemocratic regime came to power, so as long as it solved their problems. And this is up 10% from 2020, or sorry, uh, 2002. So it's a trend It's a global trend as well. Um, There's interesting polling from um, Pew and I think it was the New York Times as well. They were talking about how a growing number of both Democrats and Republicans also would be fine with a dictator or a strongman as long as their issues were addressed. And the thing is, is that in theory, you can say, oh, a strongman can do this. He can fix this. And maybe in the short time, that's the case. But you don't want a system and an infrastructure developed around a strongman because The collapse, the fall, the resignation, it's never good. So we'll have to keep following this. Anyways, that's going to do it. Like I said, a little bit shorter episode tonight. Have a great rest of your Sunday, and um, we'll be back into the week with lots going on, no doubt. So as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.